Good morning, and welcome to our time of worship. It is always good when we have the opportunity to gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to worship him and to give thanks and praise for all that he has done in saving us from our sin. This morning we are called to worship in the words of Psalm 121, a psalm of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And as we worship the Lord our God this morning, we do so as always knowing that he is present with us, he loves us, and he greets us. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in the communion of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Whenever we come together to worship the Lord our God, we do so knowing that he is holy and we in ourselves are not. In fact, in our flesh there dwells no good thing, says the Apostle Paul. And so we come needing to confess our sin, but even more than that, needing to confess our absolute need of the grace which is ours only through faith in Jesus Christ. This morning we are called to confession in words from the Canons of Dort, which tell us the power of God strengthening and preserving believers in grace is more than a match for the flesh. Yet those converted are not always so activated and motivated by God that in certain specific actions they cannot by their own fault depart from the leading of grace be led astray by the desires of the flesh, and give in to them. For this reason, they must constantly watch and pray that they may not be led into temptation. When they fail to do this, not only can they be carried away by the flesh, the world, and Satan into sins, even serious and outrageous ones, but also by God's just permission, they sometimes are so carried away. Witness the sad cases described in scripture of David, Peter, and other saints falling into sin. By such monstrous sins, however, they greatly offend God, deserve the sentence of death, grieve the Holy Spirit, suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound the conscience, and sometimes lose the awareness of grace for a time, until after they have returned to the right way by genuine repentance, God's fatherly faith again shines upon them. That we may find his gracious help, let's look to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you as those who have so often gone our own way instead of following in the way of Christ. We come to you as those who often choose our own will over your perfect will. We come to you as those who have not loved you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and who have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. Father, we pray that as we seek your grace in Christ Jesus, you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that once again you would renew your covenant with us in Christ, that you would make plain the salvation that we have experienced through faith in him. That, Father, you would forgive us our sins, for you are faithful and just. 
And more than that, that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that, Lord, from this day forward we may walk in the light, as he, our Savior Jesus Christ, is in the light, enjoying fellowship with you and with your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. People of God, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Please join me in the answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Know then that as you trust in Christ alone, your sins are forgiven and be at peace. Amen. May we look to the Lord our God in prayer this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come to you thankful for all that you are, for all that you have done, and Father, for the way in which you watch over our lives such that not a hair can fall from our head apart from your will. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself through this mighty and beautiful work of creation. We thank you that as we look at the world around us, as we look at the ground beneath our feet and the stars above, we see your glory, your divine power and majesty demonstrated in such a way that no human being is without excuse. We thank you that not only have you revealed yourself there, but Father, you've revealed yourself there in glory and majesty and beauty. We are thankful for the world that you made and for the place that you have given us in that world and for the ability that you have given us to enjoy your creation. We thank you as well, God, for your works of providence, that you look after your people, that you watch over us from the time that we are born until the time when you receive us to yourself in glory, that you provide for us all that we need for life and for godliness. We thank you above all for your work of redemption in Christ Jesus, our Savior, that you would condescend to step into time and space through Jesus Christ, your only Son, to live the life that is ours and to die the death that we so richly deserved, bearing our punishment on the cross. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the grace that has made salvation ours. And we thank you and praise you for your Holy Spirit who works in us according to your sovereign plan, sealing us for the day of redemption, assuring us that we are your children, making clear to us that we may come to you and cry out to you, Abba, Father, for we belong to you, body and soul, in life and in death. Even so, Father, we pray that your name would be regarded by holy through your children and through the church. We pray that it may never be blasphemed because of us, that the way that we live, the things that we say, the, the way that we behave toward one another and towards those who are outside the church would so reflect your love and grace in Christ Jesus that people would see him reflected in us and see you shining forth through your Son, Jesus, our Savior. We pray to this end that we may live in faithful obedience to your word, 
And we pray, Father, that we may do so for your glory, not seeking to gain any advantage or any praise for ourselves, but doing our good works and letting our light so shine before men that they may see the things that we do and give glory to you, our Father in heaven. Lord, we pray in this very troubled time in our world that your kingdom would come in its fullness. We know that it arrived when Jesus himself, the King, arrived. And we know that since the day he ascended to your right hand, he has been reigning there as King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet, Father, it seems so hard for us to be able to see your sovereign and invisible hand at work in the world. There are so many troubles. There's violence in cities around the world. There are wildfires in various places. Hurricanes that bring unprecedented devastation to the Gulf Coast of Louisiana and Texas. Father, in all of these things, it's easy to overlook that you are still in control, and yet we know that you are in work in all of these things. And we pray, Lord, that where there has been tragedy, where there is sorrow, where there has been loss, your grace would so shine through that people would look to you, our Father in heaven, and would find you to be a rock and a refuge. We pray that you would provide for those who are in need. We pray for the work of Christian Reform World Renew, that, Father, as they seek to respond to the disasters that happen in various places, you would give them people and you would give them resources to be able to work in a way that proclaims the name of Jesus to the world around. Father, we pray that in all of these things and so much more, especially, Lord, in the U.S. election coming up and and a possible election even in Canada, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we would not presume to tell you what to do or how to do it. You know our heart. You know our desires. You know the things that we want, even if those things are not good for us. And so we commit all of these to you, Father, understanding that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. Trusting, Lord, that as you hear and answer the prayers of your people, you will do so in ways that will bring glory and honor and praise to your holy name, in ways that will build up your church, the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way, and in ways, Father, that will draw us ever nearer to you through abundance and through privation in all things in this world. Father, we do pray that you would provide for us our daily bread. Again, we are so quick to make demands. And yet, Lord, we look to you to control the weather and those factors which are beyond us. We look to you to give time for harvest. We look for you to provide that which is needed for our farmers and, Father, for all people in our community and indeed in this world. We ask that you would give us our daily bread, that, Father, we may know that every good and perfect gift comes from you, and that as we see your hand of providence at work in this world, we may give you glory and be thankful. We look to you, Father, and ask, provide for our needs, provide for food, provide shelter, provide gainful employment to those who do not have work. Lord, we pray that you would give health to those who struggle with illness. We think especially within our own congregation of Lorinda and Marie and ask that you would give them strength and that you would preserve them. That, Father, they may have more time to proclaim 
your glory and your greatness in this world. Father, we pray that you would forgive us our sins, our debts, our trespasses, those times when we have offended your holy majesty, when we have broken your law. Forgive us for those times when we have failed to love you. And forgive us, Father, for those times when we have failed to love one another. Forgive us, Father, even as we are determined as evidence of your grace within to forgive one another and to show that grace to one another as you lead us in Christ Jesus. And Father, as you lead us beside still waters and in green pastures and in paths of righteousness for your name's sake, we pray that those paths would not lead into temptation, but rather that you would deliver us from evil and from the evil one, that, Father, you would not let us be caught in the snares of Satan or of the flesh or of this world, but rather, Father, to put on your armor and stand strong against the temptations that come our way. We pray that we may do this, that people would see your grace within us and give you glory and honor and praise. For indeed, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our first scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Our second reading, and our primary reading this morning, is from Ruth, chapter 1, just verses 1 through 5 this morning, as we begin this little mini-series on this beautiful Old Testament book. Ruth, chapter 1, reading verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Melon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Although the book of Ruth begins in the days when the judges ruled, the story of Ruth really begins much, much earlier on a day when a wandering Aramean, whom God would name Abraham, separated from his nephew, giving Lot 
the whole plain of the Jordan, which was well watered like the garden of the Lord, while Abraham himself turned his flocks and herds toward the hill country of Canaan. Lot, we are told at first, pitched his tent toward Sodom. He didn't move into that great and wicked city. He just lived nearby in the suburbs, so to speak. But in the course of time, he came to live right in the heart of the city where those people were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, according to God, speaking in the book of the prophet Ezekiel, and did not help the poor and the needy. But there came a day when the outcry against Sodom was so great and her sin so grievous that the Lord was moved to overthrow the city. And in that day, Lot, together with his two daughters, was delivered from the destruction of the city. Having been given permission to flee to another town on the plain, Lot, fearful perhaps that the people of Zoar might see his coming as an omen of future judgment, fled finally to a wilderness where he and his daughters settled in a cave. And if I remember my Sunday school days correctly, it's, it's hard to say because that was a long time ago, but that was always where the flannel graph lessons ended. Lot's wife had been turned into a pillar of salt somewhere out on the plain because she disobeyed and, and not heeding the voice of God turned back to look at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah to see the catastrophe which had almost overtaken her home. And we, as children, were taught to always do what we had been told or something bad might happen to us. Cue the song, Oh, Be Careful, Little Eyes, What You See. Wrap up with prayer, and then off we went to the morning service because there were no cut-out paper figures to tell the rest of the story. In truth, I'm not going to tell the rest of the story this morning. It's not even a story that you'd commonly hear in an adult Bible study. It is not nice. It is not polite. It is not pleasant to remember exactly how the birth of Lot's sons, who were also his grandsons, came about. But the Bible, which was not written to spare our sensibilities nor to offer us pleasing little fables with nice moral endings, simply tells us what happened. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant, and the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Now, of course, to this day, spoken in the context of the book of Genesis, was written down by Moses at that point when God gave him Genesis as an introduction to the book of the law. That day on Sinai, when God made covenant with his people. So the story of Lot and his daughters and his grandsons was told because it was true. Whether we like the story or not, whether we wish it was not even in the Bible, it's what really happened and Israel would need to know when they finally got around to confronting the people of Ammon and Moab, they would need to know just who they were because they weren't Canaanites like the people that they had been told to drive out of the land that God had promised to them. They were cousins, in fact, descended from the nephew of Abraham himself by this means that was condemned in the law itself. Knowing this, it may not be a surprise, 
given the origin of Moab, when, when in the course of their travels they encountered their cousins, and instead of being granted hospitality, they discovered that the elders of Moab had conspired with the Midianites to hire Balaam, the prophet, and to curse the people as they traveled on their way to Canaan. It was this want of hospitality that would prompt God's declaration in Deuteronomy 23, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. So this is not one of those happily ever after kind of Bible stories. It's not the kind of story that we like to hear in church, but the story of Ruth is rooted in the story of Lot and his daughters and the events that came after. Even when the narrator, and we have no idea who he was, begins writing and says, in the days when the judges rule, we have to pause and consider the time frame. If we compare Ruth chapter 4 with Matthew chapter 1, we learn that Boaz, who will later marry Ruth, is actually the son of Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho. What a glowing family genealogy. Now it's possible there were generations there that were left out in the documents. We're never quite sure about that. When it comes to biblical genealogies, they had other purposes than what we might have when we create a genealogy of our family history. But it's quite possible that the story we're going to consider in the next few weeks may have happened fairly early in the days when the judges rule. Perhaps just before or during the 18 years when Israel was subject to Eglon, the king of Moab, or the 80-year period which followed when Moab had been subjected to the rule of Israel. In either case, the political tension between Israel and Moab should lead to the conclusion that whether he was driven there by desperation or discontent, Elimelech's decision to sojourn in the country of Moab is not a decision that would have made him popular with his neighbors. Failing to understand that dynamic, failing to realize that there was something going on where Elimelech was walking away from an inheritance that God had given him in the land of promise to go and live in a country of despised foreigners would rob this story of its point. It would be like trying to understand the story of the Good Samaritan without understanding the dynamics between the Samaritans and the Israelites in Jesus' day. Those of you who are old enough to remember the stories anyway, you might think of the way that your parents or your grandparents felt about those Dutch citizens who sympathized with, and not only sympathized, but sometimes aided and abetted the Nazis during the war. I've heard stories told to this day of so-called quislings, who when their identity became known, they just mysteriously disappeared and were never heard from again. Society in general is not usually kind to those who make unwise and, and even sinful choices. But such was the choice of Limelech. And this was the sentiment that would have existed in Israel. The Moabites were not neighbors. They were not allies. They were not friends. Israelites were not ever to make a treaty of friendship with them, let alone move to their territory and marry their daughters. 
So while it may have been Elimelech's intent to just live there for a while, to sojourn there until the famine was over, still with that decision, he burned bridges and shattered relationships in a way that would affect his family for generations to come. And whether or not he was aware of this, it seems that his wife Naomi was, because after his death in pagan Moab, instead of turning her steps immediately toward home, she settled in, choosing to remain with her sons who at one point or another, either before that or after, had taken Moabite women as their wives. We're not sure exactly the time frame, when they were married, how long they lived, but after 10 years, we're told they died. Naomi must have seen this as the inevitable consequence of her husband's choice. The die had been cast You can't go home again. Two roads had diverged, and Elimelech, having chosen the road to Moab, had made certain that there was no going back. And just when you think that life can't get any worse, your husband is gone, your sons are literally sleeping with the enemy, your old life back in Bethlehem, the house of bread in the land of milk and honey, is just a fading memory, best forgotten, before it drives you to despair, then something happens. We don't know what. A plague? Sudden violence? We're not sure, but after 10 years in the land of the enemy, Naomi's sons both die, and she is left alone. Alone, that is, except for her two daughters-in-law, for whom she seems to feel some sense of responsibility. But they're three widows in a time and a place that is not kind to widows. There was no pension plan. There was no welfare, no social safety net. Naomi lives among her enemies, and her family back in Bethlehem, for all she knows, probably thinks of her in that same light. Needless to say, this is not the shady green pastures beside still waters part of Naomi's life. This is the valley of shadow, the winter of discontent, the barren wilderness where it feels like everything that she ever cared about has just come crashing down around her and there is absolutely nothing left to do but to point to the empty heavens above and say, you did this to me, God. You gave me so little to begin with, and now you've taken even that. She doesn't say it, of course, until she returns to Bethlehem, and we won't get to that part of the story this morning, but we shouldn't be surprised at all when we finally hear Naomi say, Do not call me Naomi. Don't call me sweet. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. For the Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. And pastor and author John Piper writes, Naomi got this much right. God, the Almighty, reigns in the affairs of men. He rules the affairs of nations and the flight of birds. His providence extends from national governments to your kitchen. Whatever else the great people of faith doubted, 
They never doubted that God governed every part of their lives and that none could stay his hand. And this is, in fact, our faith as Reformed Christians. We believe that the unseen hand of God's providence is at work everywhere, all the time, and in every circumstance. In every circumstance. It's part of our inheritance. It's part of our Reformed DNA. We can say it so quickly and so often that it almost seems trite. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. But I wonder how many of us live with that reality as the, the framework by which we live and make decisions. I wonder how many of us live with this in mind, that God the Almighty reigns in the affairs of men. He rules the affairs of nations and the flight of birds. His providence extends from the government of nations to our kitchens. I think more often we are like the lady who once told me, we pray every day, your kingdom come, your will be done. But then when something happens that's not our idea of what ought to happen, we assume somehow that God's will has been thwarted. We're still when things are going wrong in our personal or family lives, when there is more month than there is money, or when the doctor comes back with a diagnosis that does not please us, or when a cherished loved one is taken from us suddenly, when the earth gives way beneath us and it feels as if the mountains are falling into the heart of the sea. Do we see God's invisible hand, his hand of providence at work in all of those things? It's an important question because if you're not there right now, then you have been or you soon will be because this is life in a sinful and a broken world. We, we set our sights on the sunlit, well-watered plains, and the next thing you know, everything is coming apart, and we are running for the hills, like Lot, like his daughters, like Elimelech, like Naomi, like the prodigal son in the parable that I alluded to earlier. And it seems like even though we can barely remember sometimes to be thankful when things are going our way, it is so easy for us to blame God for ruining things when they are not. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter because the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. But here's the thing, as John Piper said, Naomi got this much right. God, the Almighty, reigns in the affairs of men. So for all there is in this story of sinfulness and rebellion and selfishness, all those things in the characters of Scripture and in ourselves that we don't want to see, Lot's unwise choice that cost him everything in the end, the black sheep cousins, who choose cursing over blessing, the son of Israel who chose the land of his enemies over the inheritance of his father, and all of these things. Even in human rebellion, the providence of God is at work 
God is at work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Here at the beginning, we need to consider the end if we want to see this clearly. Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Those last generations are the most important for our purposes. Boaz, who would later marry Ruth, fathered Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, the king of Israel, from whom we might add was descended Jesus, who is the Christ, the son of the living God, our Savior and our Lord. Truly, as odd as this genealogy is, it is a graceful genealogy. And ultimately, every line, every word of this little book is just saturated with God's grace because over all of these broken and sinful people, people like us, who at one time or another shook their fist at the sky and said, you cannot make me God, I will not. The living God smiled and said, oh, but I can. In fact, you can't stop me. And through some of the most messed up people who ever lived, God caused his son to be born into this world that he might redeem us from our sin, that where sin abounded, God's grace might abound still more. And the same God whose grace falls like rain on every page of the story of Ruth is still at work today in, in your life and in mine. He still upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact, all Things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. God is still at work, as he has always been at work in all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So wherever we may be, whatever's happening in our lives right now, whether we feel full or empty, whether we praise him for his blessing or are tempted to join our voices with Naomi and say, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter because the Lord, the Almighty, has brought misfortune upon me. Whether we lie down in green pastures or walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we may find comfort in the fact that none of this, none, is outside the plan and the purpose of the one who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. God is the beginning and the end. His purpose cannot be thwarted. His hand cannot be stayed. And we come to find at the extremities that ultimately our only comfort 
in life and in death is found in God and in our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The hand of providence is not always sweet, but it's always there. And it is the nail-imprinted hand of the one who gave himself for us and for our salvation. That descendant of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is our Savior. It's the hand that will lead us by a sometimes bitter providence, always on to the sweetness of his grace. May we pray. Father in heaven, give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. We are sent on our way this morning with words from Colossians chapter 4. The apostle Paul wrote, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord our God, and as you go, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's people said, Amen.